0: Welcome to Rabbi Yoshi's Search for Meaning. My name is Yoshi Zweibach. Thank you so much for joining us today. My guest today is Grammy and Emmy award-winning artist Charles Fox, an incredible composer, Killing Me Softly, the theme songs to The Love Boat, Laverne and Shirley, Happy Days. He's an amazing person, an extraordinary composer. It was a great talk. I think you're going to like it we got, I think we got our levels. Okay. Um, and sit however you're comfortable. Obviously I want you well, to if be, I, if I could do this. Perfect. Like, okay. You know, your way around a recording studio, right? Yeah. 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 So, uh, Charlie, thank you so much for making time for me today. Um, it's been one of the great pleasures of being at Stephen Wise Temple, getting to know our congregants and when I first got to spend a little bit of time with you, of course, I felt like I already knew you <laughs> because so many melodies that you have composed have been part of the soundtrack of my life, and I know of millions and millions and millions of people. How often do you have a moment where that strikes you and you realize, oh my goodness, um, I composed a song you know fifteen years ago, thirty years ago, and, and and it's changing or touching this person's life. are you Are you aware of that regularly?
1: First of all, it's a great pleasure to be here with you, Yoshi. Yeah. And uh, and you've been a wonderful uh, addition to this temple that we loved and for so long, since Jonah and I first joined, I guess, about 40 years ago. Uh, we're so happy that you're here, and you brought so many new and innovative things. You have a wonderful family, so we're delighted to be here with you today, too. Thank you.
0: Um,
1: so, I never take that for granted. I never do, because in, in all my travels around the world, really, uh, people seem to know a lot of my music. And, uh, you know, it's not something you think about when you're... Well, w- when you first write something, you write it because you, because you do, because it's what you're supposed to do. And I get up in the morning and I do my work. And and, I, and, and in many years past, the things that you're referring to, some of my songs, my television themes, I was just too busy Writing. You know, and had no thought of any kind of context of how that might be taken years later. Whether people even know my music years later. So here it is, years later, and I do hear from people all the time, and it's it's more than touching. It's um, it, it gets to me that something I wrote years ago, or uh, even something I'm writing now, is being enjoyed at the moment. So uh, yes, it has great meaning for me, and I, I don't know how really to describe that except it's uh, it's a very pleasurable experience, you know. Well, what's,
0: what's the <clears throat> what's one of the first songs you have a memory of composing? Do you do you remember your first composition? I mean, I imagine you were a mm-hmm. teenager.
1: You know, um, probably when I was about fourteen years old, I auditioned for the two schools in New York, the Music, uh, Music and Art High School which for the last 30 years has been called the LaGuardia High School of the Arts, and Performing Arts High School, which is a school from fame that that uh, became famous in fame. And I don't remember which one of them, but one of the questions I was asked when I had audition to play the piano, uh, did I write anything, did I compose anything? And I, I have no idea what that was, but I know I played something original that I wrote for them. I don't know if they were impressed or not, by the way. But I know was, I was about 14 when I remember right, playing something that I had written. Uh, and I, for the life of me, couldn't remember what that was. But I, I remember the experience of sitting there, kind of lonely at the piano bench where a bunch of people listening to me play the piano.
0: When did you start playing piano as a, as a little kid?
1: I think I was about eight or nine years old when I started. And I, uh, my piano teacher was in my building, a very lovely woman, uh, Nadia Yorberg. Uh, And um, I stood up to the fifth floor of the apartment house with the $2 in my shirt pocket, you know, which was the price of my lesson then. And I I was with, I guess, till I went to the High School of Music and Arts, I was about 13, 14. And uh, she was very influential to me in two ways. First of all, through music. Uh, She was a lovely woman. And and, um, as I began to progress at the piano and be part of little concerts and things, Um, she never yelled at me, you know. She never got angry, but she would say, oh, come on, you could do better than that. That was about as rough as she got. A very loving woman. She was also the woman who, when I finished high school, and um, for a year following high school, I really didn't want to go to a conservatory. I didn't really want formal musical education. But I continued studying privately with my composition teacher from high school. And I, considered, I continued studying privately with my orchestration teacher from high school. So I didn't stop my studies, but I was playing in bands and all that. And one night I came home from a job late at night, maybe 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, after playing with a Latin band, which I did those days. And uh, my teacher, uh, who I hadn't seen in a while, was out uh, with her dog, walking her dog at night. And uh, I remember it was a cold, windswept night. We parked my father's car many blocks away and had to walk back in the Bronx to the apartment house. And we had a little chat, and she said, so what are you doing with your life? And I said, I'm working, I'm playing the piano. And she said, well, why don't you go to Juilliard or something like that? And I said, "Um, it's just not what I want to do. I really don't want to be in the school. I said, but I'm continuing my education. I'm studying here and there, and I was composing music. And she said... There's a great composition teacher in Paris, and her name is Nadia Boulanger, and she said, why don't you consider going to Paris and studying with her? I'd never heard the name Nadia Boulanger to that moment. He was, uh, she, uh, she was Aaron Copeland's teacher 40 years before me, and generations of composers came to her from around the world. And um, well, to me, Paris sounded pretty cool. You know, I said that was. I said, "She said there's a summer school um, called Fontainebleau in the Palace of Fontainebleau. It's a conservatory for the summer." She said, "Maybe that would be a good place for you to go." And I said, "I'm sure my parents couldn't afford to send me there." She well, of course, she knew my parents. were living in the same building. She said, "Let me talk to them and tell them how important this could be." I was uh, eighteen. And, um, she, she said, uh, now in order to do that, you, you need letters of recommendation. So we talked about it. She, she kind of guided me through it. I uh, found that I needed two letters of recommendation. So one I got from my composition teacher and the other, she said, why don't you write to noted uh, composers and musicians and maybe they would give you an interview. So I wrote to Aaron Copeland. He wrote me back a nice note. He said, I'm sorry, I couldn't see you, but, uh. But all good, you just you,
0: know. you contacted him out of the blue. You'd never met I, him.
1: I, I got his address. I wrote him a letter, and he wrote me back a a handwritten letter from Utstein, New York, which is where he lived, you know, where Sing Sing is. Uh, I got a letter back from Aaron, from Linda Bernstein's assistant. He was too busy, but wished me good luck. Um, but finally, um, I was able to to find the right person who helped me and, got, and wrote a letter for me. And that was uh, uh, Thomas Shippers. Wow. He was the conductor of the um, Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. And I got a lovely letter back from his assistant, whose was name, I remember to this day, because you don't forget moments like that, Raimondo Oselli. Wow. And I met with him in his apartment on Park Avenue. And he listened to some of my music. I played the piano and I sang some of my things and... Um, Anyway, he wrote a very nice letter. Then I stayed in contact with him. I mean, unfortunately, he died at a very young age, but he was kind of following mm-hmm. my music. And, Isn't uh, it amazing and,
0: the people who come into your life and you know, for whatever reason, they, they, they respond, You know, they open a door, they give you, you some bet. time, and it makes extraordinary things happen. Nadia, who helped you end <clears> up <throat> going to France, were you able to keep up with her through your career? Was she able oh, yes. to, oh, yes. to, she to was, see some of these moments?
1: She's still part of my life today, if you want to know the truth. Oh, wow. She, in a very real sense. She's, I, I, she's with me all the time. I went there for the summer, and um, and I knew from my very first private lesson with her that I would spend my life composing music. Wow. Uh, she she gave me that courage right away to believe that. From the
0: first lesson. do you, is there From something the first you, lesson. Is there something you remember about that interaction that, obviously, she's been extraordinarily influential in your life. Yeah. But what was it like?
1: What, what? Well, first of all, the joyousness on her face and talking about music. It was the gravity of knowing how important music is in life, and uh, the significance of knowing that I could, uh, I could do that. I could make huh. music part of my life. I always knew it'd be music. I just had no idea what I was going to do. I was played with the bands and I was writing arrangements. And
0: and you uh, were eighteen or nineteen 18. at this point. I was wow. eighteen
1: when I went to Paris. And so at the end of the summer, she said uh, sh- she wanted me to come into to Paris with her to study. And I said, it uh, was a woman of that age, she was 72 when I was 18, would normally be called Madame. But in her case, she was Mademoiselle, because there was a mother who was Madame in her mind. So we knew her as Mademoiselle. And um, I said, Mademoiselle, I, I don't think my parents could afford to keep me here in Paris. And she said, "Well, let's work out a budget and let's see if we could make it work." Could they even send you as hundred dollars a month. And um, even that wasn't easy for my, my parents. My father's a window cleaner, and we had a very nice middle middle class life, I guess. Uh, but there was not a lot of extra money to go around. So I, I said, "I didn't. How, how could I stay here on a hundred dollars a month?" And so we worked out a budget. Uh, how much for a room and food and music or whatever? And and I said, but Mademoiselle, you didn't include any money for lessons. She says, Oh, I'm not interested in that. She said, uh, One day, if you're able to, you'll you'll do something for someone else. Wow. So, in all the time I was with her, the years, uh, I had no money to pay her. Wow. So it was never an issue, and I saw her probably three or four times a week. Uh, private lessons, group lessons. Uh, I was in a class with four or five other keyboard players, pianists, who uh, it was a keyboard harmony class. we do all kinds of impossible things at the at the piano that she would have us sight-read the music of Mozart and transpose it, you know, sight-read a, a score by Haydn at, tra- and at the piano, you know, and uh, transpose things. Anyway, it was an extraordinarily uh, invigorating four-hour class once wow. a week, you yeah. uh, know. Anyway, so, but I attribute that to my, my first teacher, uh, and Mrs. Yorberg who
0: was a fr- introduced me to Nadia Voloshyn. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's extraordinary the teachers who come into our lives and the way they shape us and form us. I'm sure if over we're the lucky course of,
1: if we're very lucky we right. find that person, yes.
0: I am sure over the course of your career you found ways to um to heed her advice, you know, as, can you think of some moments when you were able to open the door for for someone else? I do I do it all the time. Yeah. I do it all the time. Yeah, uh, it's
1: a it's a fantastic legacy to have in your life. Um, without enumerating things, it's it's part of my life. It's uh, uh, I go back to my high school uh, and I speak to the students, the composers, the the songwriting class right. we didn't have when I was there. Um, I um, yes, I'm always happy if I get. Well, of course, I can't do it all day long, <laughs> right. but uh, but if it comes to the right the right way, I'm very happy to. You know, as you said before about someone who comes into your life that that helps you. Uh, people said, "Where'd you get your break?" I've had many breaks. It's not just one. It's many. It's people who stopped along the way um, to say, "I'll I'll I'll give you a hand." You know, so I do that with with gladly and with
0: pleasure. You mentioned your parents. Um, tell me a little bit about their um, their history and the way they raised you. Some of the some of the memories you have of of them, the things that mattered to them, because I'm sure they had a lot to do with shaping who you
1: are. They did, yeah. They they really did. First of all, I, I think you know, my mother was a Sabra. She was mm-hmm. born. She was born in uh, Yavnel. and it was her grandmother who came to Israel, one of the first pioneers in the 1880s, Rosh Pina, and she was among the group of people that came in. Uh, um, the, um, I can't think of the name, the great French uh, philanthropist who brought a
0: lot of. Oh, uh, Rothschild? The Rothschild, Rothschild
1: family. Yeah. Baron, Baron Guy de Rothschild, thank yeah. you. And he uh, opened up, a lot, bought a lot of land around Tiberias and then sent emissaries uh, to shtetls all over Europe and asked them if anyone wanted to come back and resettle land to Palestine. So it was my mother's grandmother who came there in the 1880s. My mother's wow. born there in, in Yavnil. Although they first landed in Rosh Pina, which is And wh- okay.
0: where did her family come from in, in the old country? You know, we don't
1: know that, but um, it probably was maybe in Siberia So something. The story goes, the legend in our family was that my, my great-grandmother, my mother's grandmother, was as far back as we go, that we know, uh, walked with wow. four children and a donkey from Russia to Israel. And I've asked people about this. Is that possible? You know, and apparently a lot of people have done that. Wow. She wasn't the only one. Um, and, of course, when she arrived in Israel, they gave her a piece of land and a horse and a chicken and a duck. I don't know if a horse maybe. But, uh, and they gave him a certain stipend for each child born. Wow. And I still have um, a big family uh, in Yavnil. There's now a big dairy farm there. Hundreds of cows. My father came from Poland, from a little town called... Uh, uh, she, she, uh, she, I want to say Świdłosz, but uh, I can't quite put my my finger on the name for the But I've been there a couple of times, um, uh, not far from Krakow. My father was—he uh, was 15 years old, and uh, he was in the Polish Army. He didn't call it World War One, but it was World War One. He knew he was fighting the Russians, and uh, it was 1917 because he was born in 1902. He was taken prisoner and then escaped and made his way back to his little, his little shed, little town. Um, and um, after a while, his mother said to him that they were coming to conscript him once more in the army. So she said, life, life, run. Wow. So he left at age 7, 17, I guess, 15, 16. And he made his way to Israel. And um, he stowed away in a boat. Going to and it's still
0: pre-state. There's no. There's. It's under British mandate. Probably by this time.
1: Well, it's, it's all prior to the end of World War One. so yeah. And oh, actually, my, my mother was was Palestinian. Right. You know.
0: So, so the end of before World War <clears> One. <throat> before the so end of it World War it was still Ottoman,
1: still Turkish. It was the Ottoman. As a matter of fact, yeah. my mother's birth certificate said born in Turkey.
0: Yeah! Wow.
1: Even though it was Israel,
0: do you still have those documents?
1: I think we have that. I yeah. do think we have that. So my father made, was in Israel for a couple of years. He was a chalutz and earned early wow. pioneer. And uh, then he made his way to America, where he and my mother met. Uh, so some, they
0: met. They met there, or back no, in the states? No,
1: they met on Sunday on a blind date, and uh, and I think it was my uh, my aunt who and her husband introduced the two of them. So uh, wow. my aunt who also came, my mother's sister from Israel.
0: And sometimes people who've been through those kinds of things, um, you know, when they try to share with their children, the experiences that they've had, um, how do you, how do you share those kinds of things? Was it something that you were aware of, you know, what they'd been through? probably with lots of joyous moments as well, but some incredible hardships. I mean, age 18, he's already a war veteran. He has to flee his country, leave family behind. Was that something he was bitter about? Was it something he talked much about?
1: You know, my parents didn't talk very much about that at all. But of course, little by little over the years, my father was more willing to talk about it than my mother. But we know very little about my father's life. First of all, he was born in Poland. There was no Poland until the end of the World, war, World War I, when they were given back the name. It had been, you know, since the time of Catherine the Great, it had been divided into three different countries. So there was no officially a Poland until the, uh, the end of World War I. Um, my father um, lost his whole family. He, he left it, uh, uh, well, before the end of the war. He had one sister who had made it here, but who he did know, uh, but no one else survived the war. Um, my mother's um, my mother's born in 1907, so she was born two years before Tel Aviv was born, which is kind of an interesting way to think about it. Uh, I've been back a couple times to uh, I don't know why the name escapes me. I just know my fa- I'm <laughs> my father sent "Oh, she, she wa- okay." I'm just kidding. Now I can say it. The Poles know she she would she My mother my father called shelevitz. That was other Jews called it, Shidlowitz. But actually, when I went to Poland the first time, I wanted to find my father's town. They didn't know it as Shidlowitz, but I, as Shidwowska, Shidwowska um, I found it. And actually, um, at one time, I was... Um, when I heard the story that there were no Jews left, of course, in, in this town. And this was a famous town that... Um, Apparently, 85 or 90% of the uh, people in this town were Jewish. So that was very odd. So it was famous for that reason, not for any other reason. Um, When the Germans took it over, they destroyed the synagogues, whatever, and they destroyed even the the, uh, cemeteries, although there's one remaining. Um, There was this, before they were all taken away, the the people from that time went to the town to Droblinca. Um, there was a man who owned a, 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 t- a tannery in that town. And that town was known for tannery and for, for uh, brick, not brick making, but like um, stone, stone uh, So the, when the temple was destroyed, the synagogue was destroyed, he gave his tannery to be a synagogue. So I went to see it. It had become a little wine bar. And um, I was considering and trying to get the get that property and make it into a little museum. Wow. So Jonah and I went back to Poland at another time. We met with the mayor, and um, he was happy for us to do it, to take that over. We met with the man who owned it. And of course, whoever owned it was just given to it because it, was, it, it was belonged stolen, to a Jewish. Right, Everything right. was stolen, right. And he was willing. Uh, it wasn't that big. He had lived there with his family, and, and part of it, and the other part was the wine bar. But he was willing to give it up to us. And then, just along the way, uh, I, for different reasons, I was talked out of it. That no one would be there to take care of it. It wouldn't be. So we just we let that pass, and I, I kind of regret that because I did have that. I was in that position for a while that I could have taken that over, and but uh, anyway, I didn't. I was, I was talked out of it. It wasn't wow. a good, or smart move to do, and uh, it would there would be no one to keep it up. And
0: I went to Poland for the first time last year with uh, with Cantor Lamb, mm-hmm. and uh, and I'm going back this summer. It was. Uh, I wasn't sure you know what to expect. um I have family from outside of Warsaw on mm-hmm. my dad's side, and uh, some got out before the war right. and you know and, and the, those who stayed behind didn't make it um, and it was uh it was a wonderful experience i mean really moving and and beautiful yeah, and painful yeah. and, and all, the, uh, all the above how is that you know when you think about your your music um mm. you know <clears> how, how do some of these things make their way into your music, do you think, as you reflect back on it?
1: You know, before I even answer that, I, w- I was with Nate once in Poland when uh, we were in the Hall of Records and he, and he found his grandmother, his uh, grandmother's birth certificate. Wow. It was interesting.
0: And you did 100 Voices together, which is... We, we were
1: there at the same time for that concert, which That's turned amazing. into the film, a uh, beautiful film, 100 Voices. You know, I think everything I do was a result of my life experiences, my... my things I experience, my senses, my family, my life. And I think um, whatever we, we know in life and whatever we feel turns out to uh, have a piece of, of original things that uh, those of us who spend our lives creating things um, in, incorporates. I don't think we, we walk apart from our creations. You know, I think we are. it is kind of the culmination of who we are and what we put down and what we, what we like to keep and say, this is my work proudly
0: you know, thinking about your work, you've written hundreds of songs, you've scored for film and television. Um, in some ways, you know, maybe it's a bad analogy, but it's, it's it's sort of like being a parent and you think about your children and, uh, you know, you can't have any favorites. On the other hand, you know, there are moments where you feel particularly close, maybe to one more than the other, uh, even though you love them all equally. When you think about your work what 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 immediately comes to mind? What are some of the compositions that are most dear to you? I, I've done a lot of movies. I think I've done about a hundred movies and written hundreds of songs,
1: but i've also done a lot of uh, concert music. I've written ballets and um, my mind is really on what work I have to do today and tomorrow. So it's always nice uh, to hear about something, and people will mention something. So it'd be easy for me to say, uh, mention the songs that people would know and say these are my favorites or the ones I think about. Uh, It's only because I hear them, because not not necessarily. I think everything is sort of a um, part of my life that I I spend time with, and uh, not all the films I've done do I equally care for, obviously. Uh, not all the songs have the same meaning to me, but they all have a story. They all represent the part of my life, and I, I sort of remember the times that I worked on different projects. And through that, I can capture what, uh, what it meant to me then. Now, of course, when I have performances of pieces, then that's right now. Uh, next week, next week, I'll be next Saturday. A week from Saturday, I'm going to conduct a part of a concert at Disney Hall. And I'm going to do Lament in Prayer, which is the uh, oratorio that I wrote, uh, that Nate Lamb asked me to write, and based on the words of Pope John Paul II. And uh, so that was a very meaningful thing to me, and we, we've since done that piece here and uh, at Royce Hall with the mesta Chorale and the AYS Symphony, the L.A. Children's Chorus. Um, so I've been in rehearsal with them, and that's, that's a nice experience for me. The same program, also going to do a Symphonica suite that I wrote based on Killing Me Softly. And uh, I'm going to do a medley of some of my television themes, starting with Wide World of Sports, which was my first theme that I did in 1965. Wow. So those come back to me because I'm You're working, working on them. Working in them. Right. And now I started my career professionally playing Latin music, salsa. And uh, I made records as a, young, as a young man when I was 22, 23 years old. I made several albums, and uh, I love that music. And, uh, but then my career kind of got sidetracked because I got into composing and movies and television and all that. And um, a year ago, I decided that I wanted to get back to Latin music. I miss it. I miss just playing the piano in Latin bands. And since people didn't know that, and they weren't calling me and asking me to play the piano... I decided I've got to do that for myself. So I was planning to do an album, a new album of Latin music, with, with new songs I'd written, maybe a few old ones. And um, a very good friend of mine, Edesio Alejandro, who's one of the great Cuban composers, uh, I was talking to him about it, and uh, he mentioned it to uh, the uh, Minister of Culture of Cuba. And next thing I know, I got invited by Cuba to do concerts in Havana at the Opera House. And, um, so I did that last, uh, last July, June, July, I did two concerts and, uh, nothing but fun for me. We had a big Cuban band. I played the piano. We had these wonderful singers. And, uh, so that's become a part of my life again. So I've been invited back to Cuba a couple times and wow. I was in Mexico city a couple of, about a month ago, actually wow. playing some of my music. And, uh, what, a, what funny, an amazing
0: okay. city! I, I was there for a conference this year, Brilliant. and I'd never been to Mexico City, and mm-hmm. I got to just spend an afternoon walking around, and I just loved it. It's I a beautiful go back. city, isn't gorgeous. it? gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd seen the movie Roma this year, and so mm-hmm. it was on my mind. I wanted to go when I when I found out that I'd be in nearby. I wanted to go to the neighborhood. That the movie's named for, and I got to walk around and right. and it, you, know, you see that
1: beautiful so, parks, beautiful big streets, really yeah, it's, it's and because
0: you're it, up in the mountains, it's you know the weather was really nice.
1: It's also a little bit harder to um, you, you feel the the uh, the height. You, know, you do feel the uh, when you walk.
0: Well, it's good I mean, thing you're a pianist and not like a French horn player because well, you know, that's you true. Yeah, it's
1: always <laughs> been a good thing that right.
0: <laughs> now conducting um, is that something that that you. Really enjoy it when you think about playing piano in a band, conducting an orchestra are they are they equally exciting for you or is is, is your happy place at the piano
1: well my, I spend most some part of every day at the piano, so that's uh that 's always a happy place and in my studio I have a, a, a electronic side of it with synthesizers and keyboards, and the other side I have my my nine foot uh, concert grand Steinway, you know. So I, I kind of go back and forth. But conducting orchestras is, is great. I mean, it's, especially, I only conduct my own music, you know. But I've had the pleasure of conducting uh, orchestras in uh, many countries around the world, you know. The concerts in Japan and Poland and
0: Budapest, Israel. One of the things that I find amazing... You know, when I think about w- what you do, um, and I, I love music and I'm a, you know, um, aficionado and I, you know, a fan, um, and I, I'm a, a hack guitarist. Um, oh, and, you're not. I've heard you I'm, play I'm, the I, guitar. Come I'm, on. I'm, I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> I wasn't fishing for a compliment, but thank you so much. <laughs> you don't I, have to fish yeah, for it. comes out easy. No, but I mean, I'm you know, I think about when, when I get to be around people who um, are are truly at the very top of um of their art I'm, I'm so inspired but when i think about composition and when i see a score and i think wow you know somehow charlie heard all of these things and obviously some of it you can sit down at a synthesizer or you can sit down and play with but sometimes you're you know you're you're orchestrating for all sorts of instruments that you don't play and that you, it's not like you just pick up a v- viola well, i don't know maybe you do no, but understand. but how, how like do you understand how that works? Like, how, how do you see it all? And I know you train for years and years and years, and you work with Nadia and others. But yeah. to me, that's just extraordinary to have it all there with all of the parts, and then it comes together. And, and really, the first time you ever get to hear it fully right. is, is when you have those musicians with you. That's, uh, that's, that's amazing.
1: Well, it always it improves it a lot. But but honestly, uh, I hear it as I write it. You do. You can. You can. I, you can, you I, can hear. I, it. I, if, if I hear a melody, I hear it on a flute or a bassoon or right. bassoon and flute together. Um, when I I hear the orchestra, I hear it really like it's almost playing in my ear on the radio. Yeah. You know, as I write, it, yeah, I do. And uh, of course, now when I hear it live with an orchestra, then it's, it beats my hearing. You right. know. It's better than I ever. but i uh but there're not really
0: a lot of surprises, I man. I know just how it sounds you know you've been doing I, this I for the mystery about that for a while what was that you've been doing this for a while, you know so yeah, you, we, there's probably not that often that you're that you as you said that you get surprised you know
1: well I, uh, wrong notes will surprise me, <laughs> you know sometimes they 're not played correctly, sometimes not copied correctly. Uh, but also, no, I don't want to underestimate it. When you stand in front of an orchestra and conduct your music, however well I know the music in my head, in my mind, and on paper, there's nothing like hearing live musicians play Man. your music. And and of course, they play it with a depth and a feeling and emotion and sonorous quality and, and, and sounds that. That uh, Trump, everything there's no question about that.
0: It's magic. Yeah. When you were conducting uh, composing and scoring for film and and television, um, you know you probably there were I didn't know that there were times in the music business when this really did change and and I was never inside of it, so I only know from stories people have shared with me. but um, you know there must have been times when you were working on these television shows where you had a sound stage and an orchestra available to to you. Almost any time you wanted them, right? When you were when you were scoring for for, for well, television.
1: No, I wouldn't say that at all. No? Because everything is budget-minded, you know. Um, I mean, a normal television show. I mean, I've done many, many, many of them. But I mean, for example, uh, L- well, L- Love America Style for one, I did all those episodes. But for, we, j- we just had a fiftieth annual uh, a fiftieth reunion wow. of Love America Style. The producer, creator of the show, Arnold Margolin, was just here last week. And that was fun. We had a, just a nice reunion around the table at uh, Paramed Pictures. Um, but I mean, they would reserve a certain amount of time. If it was if it was a, a one hour show, which that was, uh, I probably had a a day call. You know, like starting at ten a.m. till two. They'd take a break, and then you know till five or six. And no I mean they're they're all very budget minded you know? right. Just now I had my own studio that I built with as you know with Artie Butler Ever, Evergreen
0: right? Evergreen yeah, yeah. so uh, we had a little more control over that it was my but, studio but these days the idea that you would have I mean so much is um, would be programmed and again maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong but from what I've heard from, from, from folks that the days when you had you know that kind of budget with that many live musicians mm-hmm. and, you know that that There aren't as many opportunities to enjoy that, maybe. But I don't know if that's the case. Well, I would
1: just say in television, uh, which I really haven't done for a long while now, um, most of the television series are all done by single people in their homes alone, or studios, all doing electronic music. Maybe they'll bring in a guitarist or saxophone player. Very few uh, of the television shows now um, have orchestras. Now, the, the new, you know, the Netflixes and those things, those are, that's different that that you that the approaches budget, right? budgets, different budgets, movie skills, um but I mean, we only had live orchestras, you know it, it, uh, and now, by the way, you know you mentioned some of my t v themes you don't hear t v themes anymore
0: right
1: they don't leave time for that. It's like ten or fifteen seconds, and I think they're afraid that people can get up and turn the channel or something. And I don't think they realized how important it was to have a whole look, not only just the, the music and the sound, but look. Right. There was a look to some of those shows that we all like. You know, they bring you back. And
0: When I think of your themes, too, I love the way the themes told the story of the show. You know, you'd, you'd hear... Whether it was, um, you know, happy days or or love boat, like over the course of that theme and the and the opening credit, and I can close my eyes, I I can see the characters of the love boat as right. they were kind of. Yeah. It brings you brings you back to them, right? Yeah. You kind of okay, I get what's going on. The one theme of a show that I, you know, that uh that I just finished watching Game of Thrones, the the theme of that, I like the way the opening credits kind of do tell the story all visually, you know, you get a sense of what's happening. But I, I think it's just so beautiful to try to figure out, you know, how do I in a minute or, you know, 45 seconds, how do I, how do I tell that story? We used to have that opportunity.
1: We used to have a minute, uh, Love Boat may have been a minute and a half. We used to have that They just don't give composers that opportunity anymore. And I really don't know why, but I guess it's network-driven, you know. Uh, but they are depriving people. I know when I grew up with the Daniel Boone theme, you know, and uh, I love Lucy, uh, those things stay with me also, and and that's what I one of the things I hear about from people. It always makes me sound a little old, but anyway, it's in, in a nice way. it said I grew up on new music, you know, right. and I remember sitting around the television watching this that. Well, that's nice. It's nice to be able to to have that in your experience.
0: Yeah, no, it's um, the the memory. I mean, I just have these incredible memories of watching those shows. Um, growing up, I grew up in Omaha in the 1970s, Mm -hmm. 1980s, and a lot of the shows were on the air still. Some of them, you know, might've already been in syndication, Mm -hmm. but you know, it was like, you know, I saw Laverne and Shirley, I mean, my brother and I, I'd come home and open the door and if my brother was sitting in the living room i'd say hello laverne hello, Cheryl. <laughs> hello. and we thought Linny and squiggy were like the funniest guys of all time but um you want to hear what the, i do when i come home
1: what do you do i said, lucy i'm here that's good <laughs> that works too. i do the same thing <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, no, but those become you know that that's part of the soundtrack of of our lives yeah. and the things yeah. we. So you mentioned "Killing Me Softly." Um, tell a little bit. I'm sure you've told it a thousand times, but a little bit about the uh, the origin of that song. And I'm also interested, like when you write something like that, you know, was there a sense with your writing partner was it was there a moment when you were like, "This is wow, something really special just happened here." So a little bit about the history, but also just. You know what it became.
1: Norman Gimbel and I started working together, and the film called Puffin and Stuff. Uh, and that was um, even before I moved out to California. I, I was asked to do a movie for Universal. I didn't have an, a regular writing partner, and so was, uh, my friends at BMI introduced me to Norman. And he was one of the great lyricists. Already wrote "Girl from Ipanema" and all the Jobim Beam songs, and uh, he already had ten huge standards. Uh, So we we got together, we started working on that show, and we liked working together. We decided that we would try to find... uh, We would stay together as a team and try to find someone to write songs for. So we were doing an album, and uh, we had completed nine songs for Capitol Records. And they were anxious to get the record out, and they asked us to uh, see if we can finish their album up quickly. So we're in my house one day, and... and, um, Now, Norman, I usually worked, he would give me a lyric. Sometimes a half a lyric, sometimes a title. With other people I've I've worked, where I started, you know, writing first. Um, And he had a book of lyrical thoughts, titles. And uh, they had scribbled down over the years. And one of them was something he got out of a book. killing me softly with his blues. He said, what do you think about that as a song title? And... um, we thought that it sounded g- good, except the blues sounded like an old-fashioned word. It's 1972, 73. I mean, the blues is the blues, but it made it sound like it was an old-fashioned song. So he thought for a moment, he said, what do you think about Killing Me Softly with a song? Mm. And, of course, that presented all kinds of possibilities. What happens when people hear a song? We all get affected, we get moved by it. And Killing Me Softly is such an interesting combination of words. So he went home, he wrote the lyric that day, he called me that night, or later that afternoon, and I took it down over the telephone, and I sat at the piano, and maybe half an hour later we had a song, Wow! just that simple, it came out. And I think I added some of the Killing Me Softly with a song, and I said, singing my whole life, I kind of repeated a little bit. And um, anyway, he got together the next day, and uh, we had a song. Did we have any idea it would become a a hit? You know, you always hope it will. But to be honest with you, I never had had a hit before, so I didn't know what it felt like to have a hit. That record was on the radio. Uh, It was uh, programmed on American Airlines. Now when we go on the airplanes, they still program music, but we bring our own music with us. We bring videos, we bring movies. In 1972, if you wanted to listen to music in the air, you were pretty well listening to what they had pre-programmed. And the nice thing that American Airlines did for us through Capitol Records was they programmed this record. So one fateful day for Norman and I, Roberta Flack, had just finished a concert with Quincy Jones in California, and she was flying home to New York. And um, she heard this song, and she's a very fine musician, and she heard the song over and over, and she wrote the notes down, and she wrote the lyric down.
0: Who was singing on the original uh, recording? A young them? woman,
1: Lori Lieberman. We wrote it for her. When, we, uh, when she got to New York, she told me she called Quincy Jones. said, how do I get in touch with Charles Fox? And one day I was walking through the music library at Paramount Pictures, and someone handed me a telephone and said, this is for you. And the other end of the line, of course I can still hear it in my, my memory and my ear, my mind, and she said, hi, this is Roberta Flack, and we haven't met, but I'm going to sing your songs. She had just won the um, the uh, Grammy for Best Record with First Time Ever, I Saw Your Face. So it was pretty extraordinary for me to get a call like that. I kind of took the phone away from my ear for a second. I looked at it like, really? Is someone putting me on? So she came out to California. We met in Quincy's office, and um, that was the beginning of it. Yeah. And then uh, she she uh, we didn't we didn't see her for a while. And uh one day we picked up the paper she was performing at Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. She didn't call me to let me know. And she uh she the review, Robert Hilburn's review, said and the best song she'd played um was an encore. And he mentioned Killing Me Softly. So we went to see it the next day. And you know, Roberta's a great artist, and she's a very spiritual lady too. She's a beautiful lady, and actually, you know, she was the one who presented me with the Songwriter Hall of Fame award. And uh, and I, and th- that day, she sang she was, she sang my song at the award show, and um, she was rehearsing in the afternoon. And then um, she and I was in the empty ballroom, spent an hour together just talking. And at one point, I said, Roberta, how, Robert, how lucky for me that you found that song." And she said, "No, no, the song found me." Wow. So it was really a, a lovely connection. And uh, it was, uh, now I didn't know it was, a, it was even a re- record. Uh, I, after that, I didn't see her after that. And one day I got a call from uh, someone from Florida Columbia Pictures Publications asking me if the print right was, uh, rights were available for the song. And I said, "Yeah, why do you want to know? He said, what do you want to know? It's a big hit. I said, really? I didn't know it. I didn't follow a billboard or cash wow. box. I didn't, I didn't follow those magazines. He said, it's a giant hit, man. Don't you know it? Well, of course, I ran down to the newspaper stand. And there it was all over. There was number 40 with a bullet and 30 and 20. I don't know. It was kind of crazy. Wow. One thing I always remember, it said, killing me softly is going to be bigger than swimming pools in California. That was a phrase I
0: remember. Wow. Well, it's also wonderful when you know there's a song that's so associated with an artist, you know, when you think of roberta flack that that becomes a song with which you know she is so deeply connected and it and it defines her in some ways yeah. um, and I love that that idea that the song you know found her and then of course it gets remade um, and uh i can 't remember where I was but i I think I was in it might have been Paris or I can't remember, but a couple years ago, if you remember, I sent you a, a little email or a text did, yeah, I remember saying I'm that. sitting somewhere, but I was in Europe somewhere, and yeah. it was on the radio, and I, I was like elbowing my camera. I was like, That's you know, because they I had love met that. you. I get that
1: from people all the time, by yeah. the way. I recently, a friend of mine who from Ecuador sent this to me. Uh, first of all, it was his daughters playing it on the guitar, but also he had a version um, from Spain that was a uh, flamenco version. We've had about two thousand cover records over the years. Wow. Through that song.
0: Um, in terms of your your journey to to Stephen Wise, um, I know that uh, that Nate. You know, many of our original albums um, of, of music for the Temple were recorded at Evergreen. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it, when we honored Nate, um, you were kind enough to to not just be there to to honor him, but to participate and perform. Um, and you've you've done um, compositions, you've composed music for the temple um, that we that we get to enjoy. Um, in terms of your own Jewish journey, you know, finding your way to to Stephen Wise, how did how did that happen?
1: I was brought up in a really religious house. My parents were kosher. Um, my mother was spiritual. My mother had a really spiritual quality about her. Um, she believed in God, but she she was very she was deeply attached, um, and um, I, I got I got that spirit from my mother, my father. They they um, you know we, we love things Jewish. We just we just love being Jewish. It's our heritage. It's our background. And uh, I love Jewish humor and, and this sensibility and morality. And uh, um, so when we came, when Joan and I moved to California, we uh, we found Stephen S. Wise. And uh it's been a very spiritual home for us over the years. And plus which uh with Ailey Hersher and, and his family and and Nate and his family, we we have real real strong bonds, you know. And over the years, um, I think the first time Nate asked me to write something was after my when my father passed away. He said, Why don't you write something for your father? And I did. I wrote uh And um that he uh, they recorded it with the Israel Philharmonic for the first time, Michael Isaacson conducting and uh, with the choir here and uh, and Rabbi Zeldin putting on the the spoken part. Um, but you know, I'm about the let the man let the work of a man's hands sustain it's about memory and and sustaining the work of one's life. Um, so. It, for me, a wonderful experience. It's been performed every year since. It usually opens the, uh, the uh, Yom Kippur service in the afternoon, afternoon service. Yes, sir. service. And um, so it started with that. And, and then from time to time, Nate, w- Nate would ask me to write something. And uh, for my f- um, 19... Let's see. About 28 years ago now... Um, I had done a film score based on Victory Entebbe. It was a movie score. If, if, if you remember, the, well, of course you know the incident. And I did a film score very quickly. We, we, from the time I saw this 200-page script till we were on the air, and it opened in Israel in maybe a matter of weeks because there were other films vying for the same thing. And one day at a concert, they said to me, why don't you turn that uh, film score into a, a suite of some kind? So um, I said, all right, that sounded good and challenging. And I... I And then I called him at one point, and I said, "Um, you know, the way it's turning out, it's kind of turning into a little bit of a piano concerto, you know? I said, who would we get to play that? And he said, well, why don't you play it, the piano? Michael Isaacson was conducting the concert. And I said, "Uh, when, when is the concert? What's the date of it? He said, it's October 30th. I said, that's the date of my 50th birthday. I said, I'd like to play the piano on my birthday. That would be nice. So we did it that time for the first time. And, um, and I said, here's well, what else I said. I said, I don't want to make a big deal of my birthday, so I'm happy just to play the piano. So we had a big audience at Stephen S. Wise with a big orchestra. And after they played my piece, Nate had a surprise, and he wheeled out this huge birthday cake with 50 candles. And the symphony orchestra played Happy Birthday.
0: Oh, that's great.
1: And 500, 600 people sang Happy Birthday. And I said, and I didn't want to make a big deal on my birthday, you know.
0: And yeah, for Nate, that was small. That was know? a small.
1: <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, but over the years, um, you know, Nate is wonderful. He comes. Uh, he's a great putter, putter together, person who puts together talent and music. He's the most, really, I have to say this, he's the most erudite person I know of um, Jewish culture and learning and, and musical history. He, he knows everything about it. About Jewish history and Jewish music, and a lot of other things to boot, by the way. But um, Nate and I are very dear friends over the ages, and uh, over the ages, and, uh, it sounds it's a little too long already. Over the years, a few decades, decades, that? yeah. yeah. I think, well, we go, Our friendship goes back to, uh, forty years, yeah. yeah. And uh, so, from time to time, he'll ask me to write something, and uh, I always say yes. I always say yes.
0: Well. Um the questions I like to to close with are uh, are two questions that really get at at um, purpose and and meaning in our lives. Um, you know what what keeps you up at night and what gets you up in the morning.
1: I must say these days I'm um, I'm not working as late at night as I used to. I used to come back from dinner and go back to work, and I always enjoyed working. The uh, first of all, the telephones are quiet. The uh, in my studio, someone comes into my into my house. I'm kind of easy prey to knock on the door and say, "Can you do this?" We have, uh, and at night it's quiet, it's dark, and I and I've done over the years most of my work. Well, first of all, I work day and night, so it's hard to tell. Some there were some years that I I literally worked day and night, But now I find myself uh, more of a morning person. I'm getting up in the morning. I love to walk. I still put a full day's work in. But um, but I'm enjoying the evenings more with that without working. Um, you know I I never stopped loving what I do. I, lo- I love what I do. People ask me, "Are you retired?" And I said, "I get up in the morning. I go to the piano. I write music. Why will I ever stop?" People say, "Well, do you have any dry spell?" I said, "It hasn't happened yet. I haven't uh, the notes keep coming?" And I still have. I, I still have all these dreams of things I want to accomplish. I do. Um, and, uh, I mean, right now I, I have two shows I'm working, hopefully for Broadway. One, we just had a reading of a musical that I did with uh, Arthur Hamilton, who wrote Cry a River. And um, Norman Steinberg wrote some of the great movies. And... Um, we just did a play called, uh, School for Scandals, an 18th century play, Restoration Comedy, that we turned into a musical, just had a reading in my house, and, uh, we're moving it forward, hopefully to, to New York. I'm working on a second musical with Alain Boublil, who wrote Les Miserables, and, um, Miss Sagan, and we've been working in here and, and in New York, where he has an apartment as well, and, uh, And actually, we're going in a few weeks to Tuscany. We're going to work with them there. And we're coming along quite well with that. Um, And beyond that, uh, I have an opera that I started to work on based on The Grapes of Wrath. And uh, I'm going to get back to that. I had to put that down for a while because I wasn't able to get the rights to it. And just this past week, we were at the opera. And... uh, James Conlon who's the conductor a fantastic conductor of our opera I usually see him after and say hello but this past week Marilyn Horne was there and they had a discussion with Marilyn Horn. Well, you know the great singer I was writing The Grapes of Wrath for her she was going to be Majode and I, and I played an aria for her and she remembered it and, but I hadn't seen her in a while and um, and so I did see her that day just last Sunday and uh, she told me uh Really, how much Placido liked that work, and uh, but yet I have uh, it was dead in the water. I, I wrote about a half an hour's worth of music. I recorded with members of the Los Angeles Opera Company. Um, without the rights, you can't you can't get anything on. But I was kind of inspired after speaking with her about that, how she remembered it and, and all that, and uh, so I think I'm going to put that as my next project yeah. after I finish these shows. I want to get back and finish that work. Whether I can ever have it performed or not, we'll see. But for me, the motivating force is really to uh, to do it, because it's on my mind to do it, you know. Um, I have all kinds of other pieces of music that I want to write. I don't, I don't see where it's going to stop. I just have to keep doing it. Of course, then I write songs all the time. Paul Williams and I just wrote a song that's in a movie, um, The Dandy Gold, his new movie, Called The Bronx, USA, and we wrote a song called The Bronx.
0: Um, it's a ho- your hometown?
1: I mean, you- it's my hometown, yeah. When I called Paul, I said, Paul, I have a, I'm going to do a song for a new movie called About The Bronx. I'd like you to do it with me. He said, So, you know, I said, well, it's, just, it's about friendship in the Bronx. He said, Well, you know about the Bronx, and I know about friendship. Let's do it. Great. Anyway, Paul's a great, a great guy, a great friend. Um, so that's what gets me up in the morning. Uh, first of all, it's the morning. And uh, you know it's a sort of a new day. And uh, I love my work. You know I have a wonderful family. I'm very blessed to have a wonderful family. I'm married to John for 56 years.
0: Uh, yeah, all good. Okay. Charlie, thank you so much. I hope uh, I hope the notes just keep coming, um, because as a, as a fan, it is um, it's a joy to be able to receive those notes. And uh, and as someone who's had the privilege of getting to spend time with you, um, your your heart, your neshama, your um, humanity, who you are as a person, comes through in every interaction. And I'm just grateful to you for your for your time and for being who you are.
1: Thanks, Josh. I do appreciate that very much. And. Uh, Uh, It's great to sit here with you and talk with you. And uh, again, so happy that you're here and uh, you're
0: a spiritual leader here at S Wise. That was the great Charlie Fox. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Rabbi Yoshi's Search for Meaning. You won't miss any episodes if you do that. Thanks for tuning in.